when we look pretty critically at the gold standard interventions that we do have, where people are fed different diets and we're tracked to various endpoints, we don't see red meat consumption really increasing these systemic inflammatory markers the way that is oftentimes claimed. You do see some changes in, in cholesterol and lipoproteins, but the cholesterol heart disease kind of linkage is getting weaker and weaker every day. There was just a really fascinating paper looking at fatty acid consumption and the way that it changes cholesterol and lipoproteins and, and that that is totally independent of cardiovascular disease risk. So consuming more saturated fat does elevate cholesterol and lipoproteins. And that is meaningless with regards to cardiovascular disease risk relative to things like blood pressure, blood glucose levels, and systemic inflammatory markers. Hello, and welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché, family physician and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. This week's episode is another in a series of Pursuing Wild Health episodes, which I'm publishing in collaboration with doctors Mike Mallon and Matt Dawson of the Wild Health Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about them, you can take a listen to episode number 172 of the podcast where I interview Matt and Mike. In this episode, we sit down with Rob Wolf, who you may know as a former research biochemist and two times New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling author of The Paleo Solution and Wired to Eat. He and his co-author Diana Rogers recently released their book, Sacred Cow, which explains why well-raised meat is good for us and good for the planet. Now, Rob is also a longtime CrossFit enthusiast, and he is the co-founder of the first and fourth CrossFit affiliates in the world. He's also transformed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people around the world through his podcast, books, and seminars. He's known for his direct approach and his ability to distill and synthesize information to make the complicated topics easier to understand. So in this episode, we cover a very wide range of these topics with Rob, including the online censorship of health communities, why beef can have a place in a healthy diet, and the importance of regenerative agriculture for the health of our planet. Before we dive in, I do want to make it clear that this podcast is for general information only and does not provide medical advice. I recommend that you seek assistance from your personal physician for any health conditions or concerns. So with that, let's get started with the episode. I wanted to just start off and ask some general questions um, because I first heard of you through CrossFit. I know... Mm -hmm. You were the first CrossFit affiliate almost probably 20 years ago now yep. um, and have been in this landscape of health and fitness for a long time. I think a lot of people through the CrossFit community first learned about paleo through you and your books. Um, and obviously a lot has changed over 20 years. Right. So I'm just curious, looking at it big picture, what do you think are some of the things that have changed for the better in the health and fitness landscape? And then maybe some of the things that are for the worse or things we need to be watching out for. Oh, it's a really good question. You know, it's, it's, uh, something that was cool, you know, would CrossFit emerged at this really fascinating time. Like the, the internet was new, but not so new that there was nobody on there. Bandwidth speeds were starting to pick up. So even though it was still mainly like in 2002, it was still mainly photos. Every once in a while, you would get a, a video posted of somebody working out and stuff. And um, the, you know, the thing that, that uh, the way that I found CrossFit was searching for paleo diet related research, because there wasn't a lot in, in 1998 when I first found it. 
And I found two main people, Arthur Devaney, who's a professor of economics, who's now retired, and then Lauren Cordain. Mm -hmm. And I would just put into Google every couple of weeks, you know, uh, paleo diet and Art Devaney and different things. And there was a CrossFit.com front page link to Art Devaney's work. And that's actually what got me into, you know, the CrossFit scene. And so what was so fascinating and cool, in my opinion, it, 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 this early iteration of this story is that people could share information so rapidly. Sometimes the information is terrible, but also <laughs> because we're able to... to um, I guess I'm, I'm very kind of libertarian leaning with regards to information. I kind of like more information to be available and then let people experiment and tinker. And with some transparency, you can really figure out what works and what doesn't. And, and, and sometimes what works for one person is just simply different than what works for somebody else. So that was really inspiring and very interesting. And that is kind of the thing that I'm most excited about. And then going forward, social media and media at large has wedded together in such a way that now we're almost kind of going backwards in a way where if there's a topic, like I know we're going to talk a little bit about regenerative agriculture here in a little bit. If there's a topic that kind of goes against the mainstream narrative, these things are now getting censored and shadow banned and it's being becoming difficult to have conversations in health, wellness, sustainability, economic topics and whatnot. And so the the same thing has been both my most positive and exciting thing is the ability to share information, but also the thing that I'm honestly most concerned with where the world is going at large is this control over information and this ability to really um, put a powerful thumb on the ability to have discussions on any of these topics. Like if if CrossFit had really hit the internet in 2021 instead of 2001, I don't know that it would have really gone and done what it did because if it was not in the good graces of say like the American Council of Sports Medicine or the NSCA, or, and if those entities had linkage to Google and Facebook and Twitter, and they said, well, all of these claims about fitness and, and work capacity across broad time and modal domains don't fit within the accepted dogma, that could have all been shut down and largely repressed. And so I, I, I don't know if I'm rambling at this point now, but like that's the stuff that I have been both interested and fascinated, excited for, and also I'm very, very concerned about now. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think a lot of people too are just starting to realize the degree of this censorship. Can you explain a little bit about how that works and then how you go about finding good information or knowing what, what truth is? Well, the what truth is, I think, is <laughs> a, 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 I, I will not really try to, to dig into that, but I think that that's part of our problem right now is people really trying to define that. I'll, I'll give a, a personal example of, of where this stuff kind of emerged. Um, we have, we, we've had an online presence for ages. Uh, we've had different products like the Keto Masterclass, which is this really comprehensive ketogenic diet program. I mean, it's a, it's a massive program that I put together several years ago. And historically, we were able to sell this thing pretty well online. And then we, we kind of noticed on Facebook and other outlets, like it just started trending down and it was really odd. My wife is quite good at, at kind of online marketing and whatnot. But it got to a point where we really couldn't sell the thing. And so we, we did some reaching out and found some folks that had the credentials as being the, the best 
uh, uh, Facebook marketing firm on the planet. And we were like, hey, do you think you could sell this thing? And they looked at it and they're like, we could sell the pants off this thing. And uh, we, we gave them access to our, our back end of our, our Facebook and whatnot. And they started doing their magic. And then these guys just kind of went dark on us for about two weeks. And we're like, hey, just curious if there's any updates or anything and no response, no response. And then we finally get, got a ping back and they were like, hey, we just didn't know how to tell you this, but um, we can't sell this thing to save our lives. Like you guys are being shadow banned. This thing wow. is, is like impossible to sell. And it was right around this time also, like my, my website, robwolf.com, historically had a fair amount of, of traffic. Like it's not the biggest website in the world, but uh, because of being on the web for a long time, we had hundreds of, of articles that had kind of long tail reach, like Hashimoto's thyroiditis, CrossFit, and gluten. You know, I mean, these, the, not a massive amount of traffic, but if somebody put those things in a search engine, like I was the, the person that they found, and we had hundreds of examples like that. And then we had examples like I did a review of the movies, What the Health, and also Cowspiracy, where they're kind of vegan, you know, backed uh, documentaries, very well done, but they make some pretty in my opinion, dubious claims. And what I did is I went through the whole, the totality of these films. Okay. One minute, 30 seconds claim made. Here's the citation they have. Here's my thoughts on it. And I went through two hour movies doing that, you know, and I had these massive blog posts on that. When you would search for what the health or cowspiracy, the film would pop up first and then maybe one or two articles. And then my review of the film would pop up. So it was first page of Google search returns. Um, one morning I got up and, and Mark Siston and Chris Kresser both had texted me and they're like, Hey, have you looked at your traffic analytics for your site? I'm like, no. And I looked at it and our, our site relative to day over day had gone down 97%. It was wow. as if the site had just disappeared from the internet. And what was fascinating is some of these super highly um, valued posts like the What the Health Review that were linked to from, from highly respected other websites and also that had a lot of traffic and whatnot. Like it ticked all the boxes of being quality um, material that Google would normally highlight. You couldn't even find it on like page 40 anymore. So this thing had just disappeared. And what had happened about 50 different websites that were kind of in the low carb space had been banned, had largely, you know, their backlinks and whatnot had been pulled out. This was a, a very direct kind of process. And the why behind that is really speculative. Um, about five years ago, GlaxoSmithKline and Google had about a $700 million exchange of funds. And the way that this went down, some folks have made the case that Google could technically be considered a, a uh, pharmaceutical company now. And when you really look at it, this is something that I, I had seen some real uh, potential within the CrossFit scene. Like I had this dream that every CrossFit box would have a, a physical medicine practitioner, you either a chiro or a doctor of physical therapy, and also like an internal medicine practitioner. And uh, I had this term, um, the gym is primary care medicine, you know, like mm -hmm. I thought that this would transform healthcare way back when. And I think that there was some real potential to do that. I don't know if the window of opportunity is totally closed on that, but it's definitely different now. But um, there's kind of a reality that everything that you look at the mainstream kind of pharmaceutical process is trying to address 
is all metabolic disease driven. I mean, COVID kind of changed it. Like COVID put infectious disease kind of, kind of back on the radar, but otherwise it's Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease, uh, all of these things that are, are understood to be metabolically driven and low carb diets and some sort of a slick, you know, functional training program, in my opinion, can at a minimum prevent and potentially even reverse these things, depending on how far down the disease process folks have gone. So again, this is speculative, but it's interesting who was singled out for this type of curation and who wasn't. It was very high traffic websites, sometimes with some pretty wacky claims, like some of these people are very strongly into the anti-vaccine and some of them have made some claims that like 5G radiation from cell phone towers will give you three arms and 12 heads and all this stuff. And I just don't buy into all that. So it was an interesting mix of largely people kind of in the low carb scene. Some people that were also talking about regenerative agriculture, which I think all of that is pretty legit depending on how it's couched. But then there was also some, some very fringe dodgy type stuff that I think kind of justified this curation on the part of Google. But this is a pretty good example of where um, information, you know, like health information, even this topic of regenerative agriculture, uh, frequently uh, small time farmers, regenerative ag producers, if they do any type of like uh, pictures of bacon or an animal harvest or something like that on Instagram, they, they get, shadow banned, like their, their, their site traffic is throttled, uh, not infrequently. They will get kind of little, little nasty grams from the, the folks running Instagram or Facebook saying, Hey, you are in danger of violating these completely non-specific community guidelines. And if you keep that up, then we're just going to, we're going to take your page down. And so then people are really kind of, they're trying to grow a business. Um, arguably things like, uh, Instagram are one of the, the few ways that somebody like a, a small time regenerative ag person or even a gym owner could reach the people in their region that would be interested in what they're doing. But if you're singing a song that it doesn't fit the current narrative, you, it's very easy to find your, your business gone. If you've got a half million followers on multiple platforms, then you can turn around and find ways of kind of repealing that and, and, and uh, getting that stuff reversed, which I was able to get some of my stuff reversed. But there's a lot of people out there that they, they have okay followings, but they're not huge. They're just building things. And if, if they get on the wrong side of this curation process, it, it could be the end of their business. And it's very scary. So I, I think it tends to cow people into following a very specific, you know, kind of line of, of reasoning and investigation so that they, mm -hmm. they do the best job they can to stay out of those crosshairs. Wow. Yeah. It's very scary. <laughs> All the things that you just shared and how, how it can influence um, the public's thinking, but I think, you know, we want to get into some of your research and writing on red meat as well, which in itself, you know, just looking at health in general, it's crazy how much is being censored, but looking at red meat also, it's not just how it's maybe being censored by pharma or by other special interests, but it's, there's not even great consensus among the scientific community or the research or medical community on what is best for our health. So could you just lay the groundwork for that about what are, what are sort of the two arguments and why do we have so much trouble um, even as a medical research community coming up with how to make sense of this? That's a really good question. And it's going to end up being a lot better than my answer. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> you, you know, in, in, 
honesty and transparency, nutrition science research is tough because like, how do you double blind an intervention? Like, how do you uh, make it so that neither the people nor the researchers know that one group of people was eating beef versus tofu, you know? So, I mean, these randomized control trials are really difficult in these scenarios. Um, they're expensive. They're very time consuming. So a lot of the, the problem that has emerged is that because of the difficulty and the complexity of doing uh, gold standard science research in nutritional science, we've defaulted to these uh, retrospective epidemiological studies where they will ask people, what did you eat last week, last month, last year? There was a huge paper that was published um, maybe a year and a half ago, because maybe a little longer than that, because we actually referenced it in Sacred Cow. But one of the data time points that asked people to remember what they ate was 12 years in the past. What were you eating 12 years ago? And I mean, it's there's a, there's a great guy, Dr. John Ioannidis, who has criticized this research, and he's made the case, and he's, he's done it via statistical methods, basically saying or making the case that there is more error than signal in this research. And what that means in scientific terms is that it's just garbage. Like it, it, when you set things up like this, they set these studies up in kind of a circular logic where the only, the only conclusion they can arrive at is the conclusion that they loaded in the front, which really isn't good science. Um, where epidemiology really won very early on was finding a, a powerful relationship between smoking and cancer. And it, I'm using somewhat arbitrary numbers here, but if there was a relationship between smoking and cancer and we gave it an arbitrary number of 10,000, if we were to look at the linkage between meat consumption and cancer, it's a two. Like it's, an, it's many orders of magnitude greater the correlation between smoking and cancer than, than uh, meat and cancer. And you need to hit a very powerful threshold in these uh correlative studies before you start really getting a sense that there might legitimately be um, causation here. And the, the, the studies that are done, they're, they're not remotely close to the, the meat hitting a causation threshold within epidemiology, but they do some really wacky things. So like there, it, if we were to consider the background potential of everybody in the United States right now for developing colon cancer, it's about 5%. Like if you're born in the United States, you, you have about, about a 5% chance of developing colon cancer throughout your lifetime. If, if you believe that the information in these retrospective studies is accurate, which I don't, but let's, let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say that it's 100% gold standard solid stuff. If you ate red or processed meat every day of your life, your whole life, then your, your risk for colon cancer goes from a background level of 5% to 6%. So it has an absolute risk increase of 1%, again, in theory. Um, but the way that this gets reported in the, the media and the way that the scientists report this is that it's a 20% increase in cancer risk due to red meat consumption, because the difference between five and six is 18%. And so why not round it up to 20? And, and that's the way it gets reported. So there's some really shady stuff that happens on, on that front. The, when we look pretty critically at the gold standard interventions that we do have, where people are fed different diets and we're tracked to various endpoints, 
We don't see red meat consumption really increasing these systemic inflammatory markers the way that, that uh, is oftentimes claimed. You do see some changes in, in cholesterol and lipoproteins, but the, the, the cholesterol heart disease kind of linkage is getting weaker and weaker every day. There was just a really fascinating paper looking at um, fatty acid consumption and the way that it changes cholesterol and lipoproteins and, and that that is totally independent of cardiovascular disease risk. So consuming more saturated fat does elevate cholesterol and lipoproteins, and that is meaningless with regards to cardiovascular disease risk relative to things like blood pressure, blood glucose levels, and systemic inflammatory markers. So I don't know if I did a great job of answering that question. Like it's a, it's a big meaty topic and we devoted a, a third of the book, uh, sacred cow to this health topic and looking at different things like does meat cause cancer, does meat worsen diabetes risk and really went down all those things. And largely what we came away with and Clearly, we've got a bias, but we, we, you know, we cited the research and, and whatnot. But what it really looks like is it's very, very difficult to feed humans, particularly small growing humans, effectively without the inclusion of animal products. Like what, what we found is populations with little or no access to animal products, either by, by design because they chose that or because their, their situation, like where they live in the world and what access they have, um, People suffer massive uh, malnutrition and and uh, failure to thrive scenarios when they don't have adequate access to animal products. So that's kind of the flip side of this thing that is very well documented, but is not particularly well discussed because it really flies in the face of the the common narrative that that meat consumption is bad for health. Rob, you you talked about some statistics there. I think is important to dig into a little bit as well. You mentioned the. 5% risk increase to 6%. And I think it's important to define what that means for people too, not just talk about 1% versus 20%. But when I talk to patients, I talk to them about how, look, that 1% increase means in 100 alternate universes of you, if you all ate meat, one of you would get an extra colon, would get colon cancer. So that's the cost. But then what is the benefit of eating mm -hmm. meat? To talk about a cost doesn't help us at all. If the benefit is massive or the benefit is not there, that's how we determine the cost risk benefit ratio. Those yep. numbers I think are hard for people to wrap their minds around. But one thing you talked about in the book, which I thought made the point really well, is when you talked about, I think I can't remember the numbers. So you can correct me. I'd like to hear you talk about this, how you looked at maybe 51 different foods to see if there was any data that they may lead to increased risk of cancer. And it was something like 47 out of 51. It was there. Yeah. If you just yeah. talk about, is there a correlation? You're always going to find it with enough studies, but how big of a risk and what is the benefit? Could you talk about that? Because I think that 47 out of 51, that example helps people wrap their mind around this issue. Yeah. I, I'm glad you mentioned that one. I forget about that one, but, uh, almost everything that is consumed has some correlative value with cancer. And I was talking to a pretty high level cancer researcher and, and this gal kind of was of the opinion that, that because food is fundamental to life and you have to be alive to get cancer, that there's going to be some correlative, like if this thing keeps you alive, you may live long enough to get cancer. And it may have been completely independent of the, of this thing actually hastening cancer. It's just the fact that you continued to be alive and didn't die before getting cancer, which is a whole kind of weird way to, to look at this stuff. But it, it, um, it just, 
you know, there are some things like aflatoxin, which is a, a really potent um, a fungal-derived uh, uh, toxicant. Uh, peanuts can be rich in it. Foods that, that get it, uh, uh, overgrown with mold can be just, just really, really heavy with it. Aflatoxin is incredibly carcinogenic. Like it, it is, it, it, it kind of makes like plutonium look, look benign by comparison. And so we have these really powerful relationships there. And we've been able to establish both correlation in certain scenarios, like in epidemiological studies, but we've also been able to take aflatoxin, feed it to animals and induce cancer in those animals at remarkably high rates and very, very quickly. So we are able to get in and kind of compare apples to apples, apples to oranges in this case. And an interesting side note when, uh, so some of the studies that are, are kind of the, the pro-vegan type stuff that cited is uh, the T. colon Campbell, the China study and whatnot, where they were feeding mice either low protein or high protein diets. And what was interesting in that scenario, it, 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 what is reported is that high protein diets accelerate the growth of cancer, which is true, particularly in mice. What was not mentioned in that is that high protein diets protected the mice from cancer. It took them much longer to develop cancer, but once they developed cancer, it, it, it was on. It, it, it really went full tilt. And the thing that they used to induce the cancer was aflatoxin. So they were feeding the animals this really potent carcinogen, then feeding them different diets and trying to then hang whether one diet or the other was carcinogenic on the protein content and kind of ignoring the fact that they were feeding these animals a known carcinogen. And Doc, I don't know if that answered your question particularly well, but it, it, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I could see Mike has, wants to ask some questions, but I want to ask you one more follow-up follow about that is uh, when it comes to kind of protein, like you mentioned, there's a lot of discussion around, okay, protein does um, activate mTOR. Uh, and so you think about that both from a performance standpoint, it can be helpful, but then other people talk about um, inhibiting mTOR with fasting and things like that to increase longevity. So how do you think about that kind of trade-off between performance and longevity and how do you apply consumption of meat to that, to, to your thought process around that? Yeah. So I wrote my first article on fasting in 2005, really um, pretty excited about it and about the potential of, of some degree of intermittent fasting plus like smart training and nutrition being this, this really beautiful middle ground where you could optimize performance, health, and longevity. And by 2006, uh, I deeply regretted releasing this article because it mainly went out to the CrossFit scene and God bless our CrossFit folks. But if you wanted to find a more extreme cross-section of people, I don't know that you could ever find them. You know, I had people that were writing to me and they're like, Hey, um, I'm a female athlete. I haven't had a menstrual cycle in eight months. My hair's falling out. Uh, I intermittent fast 23 hours a day. Uh, I had six grams of carbohydrates last month. And, oh, no. it, 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 and you're, so these, these folks had a tendency to take every, like if there were 10 different things you could do that would have some stress attached to it, but also that stress, that hormetic stressor being related to some health and longevity benefits, they would triple the dose and then stack all 10 of them together. And I was just like, oh my God, what have I done? Like I, I gave a bunch of monkeys like, like nuclear weapons, you know? And, and uh, so I, I've followed this stuff really closely. And over the course of time, um, I think 
This is an opinion piece, but I did a, a, a talk for 2020 that I only got to, to release at one spot. It was at the Metabolic Health Summit. And the title was Longevity, Are We Trying Too Hard? And I really got in and looked at the calorie restriction research, mTOR, what mTOR does and doesn't do. Folks don't realize that you have to have mTOR activated at the front part of the immune response to identify cancer. Otherwise, cancer will grow unchecked. So you need mTOR both to promote cancer, but you also need mTOR activation in the immune system to be able to identify cancer. So it can't be this thing of, of just a light switch on or off. And when I really started digging into that stuff, I had this sense that the only thing that calorie restriction was doing, particularly in animals, which is where it's mainly been studied, is it was protecting animals from eating a terrible lab chow diet. Like these animals are fed a processed food diet their whole lives. And we all know that processed food is terrible. And there have only been a few studies feeding animals like, like uh, rodents and, and uh, uh, some of the primates a species-appropriate diet. And when you feed these animals what they should be eating, largely what they would eat in the wild, calorie restriction not only has no benefit to these animals, it shortens their lifespan. So I was kind of looking at this and I was thinking, man, is the whole benefit that we're looking at here simply if we can get folks to not overeat? And that's a non-trivial thing in the modern world, like with hyperpalatable foods and access to effectively like infinite food sources. Like that's a non-trivial thing. But I, I, the, the kind of long and short of this is that I think if you're doing something like an appropriate strength and conditioning program, uh, something akin to an ancestral eating pattern and you find whether you do better on higher carb or lower carb. And you do that in a way where you have good body composition, lots of muscle, comparatively little body fat. I don't think that there is any benefit to significant amounts of fasting above and beyond that. Maybe three days, once every couple of months, maybe a day here and there. But if people are considering, should I add an extra day of fasting or should I add an extra day of strength training? The strength training we know provides huge benefit. And when people start talking about autophagy and, and you know, like tissue cycling and whatnot, coffee stimulates autophagy. Lifting weights stimulates autophagy. Uh, a, a sauna stimulates autophagy. Uh, getting adequate sunlight has been shown to be as, as beneficial in reducing morbidity and mortality as the difference between smoking and not smoking. Like if you are not actively seeking out sunlight on your person and you, and you have an easy way to do it. I know some people that, that live at Northern latitudes that that's tough and it, it can be hard to, to fix that. But everybody knows that smoking is terrible for their, their, you know, health and longevity, but virtually no one realizes that safe, reasonable sun exposure reduces all cause mortality risks as greatly as either being a smoker or not a smoker. So I really, um, I've seen folks within say like the keto scene that have gotten terrified of, of mTOR and protein. And these folks are doing massive amounts of fasting and when I see them, like they've got the dark circles under their eyes, they do not carry a, an ounce of extra muscle mass. Like they're, they're indistinguishable to me from like a raw vegan that has ridden that pony way too long. 
And I think that they've just really driven that whole boat in completely the wrong direction. And uh, I really am kind of in the minority on this, though. Like, there are a lot of people that are super geeked out on fasting and protein cycling and all that stuff. And uh, again, like, I I think I'm going to make this talk generally available because I think I make a very compelling case that folks may be trying way too hard on this topic. Like, I would rather see people generally eat more protein than less, eat two meals a day, maybe three, you know, two meals and a snack. So I'm not suggesting that we eat all day, all the time. Um, Overeating we know is really bad and it definitely overstimulates mTOR, but you know, with two meals and some strength training, two meals and a snack and some strength training, you get mTOR turned on, it gets repressed, it gets turned on, it gets repressed. Uh, And I think that that cyclic nature is kind of ideal for both muscle maintenance, immune response, cognitive uh, performance, and a host of other health concerns. So I think that people are looking at this in in too binary a feature, uh, either just on or off versus thinking about kind of a pulsatile process and and more like information processing, being able to put nutrients and and, uh, physical activity and sunlight as, as a way of tuning the the genetic response to get to get better results so just to clarify you're a big fan of raw veganism huge huge yes yes particularly in kids um it, it's yeah. funny i like the way I, you describe it as looking like they're about to die yes <laughs> um it's funny i've really gone to battle over that in the past and now i'm kind of like do raw veganism and feed your kids raw vegan and the reason why i say that is horrible like i'm a horrible person for saying that but Um, this will have such terrible consequences for these kids that it will be impossible to hide how terrible veganism is when you look at what it does to children. They've been able to hide it in adults and do all this kind of smoke and mirrors and whatnot. But the way that I will ultimately defeat veganism is there's just going to, you got to break some eggs to make an omelet. And so a bunch of these uh, otherwise well-meaning vegan parents are going to ruin their kids. And then that's all going to get tabulated. And at some point people are going to look back and be like, okay, yeah, that's child abuse. You can't do that anymore. And if it's bad for kids, it's probably bad for everybody else. So I am going to hell at some point for that, but it's, it's the bullet I'm going to take for everybody else. So just to summarize, we have some clips for social media. Crossfitters are monkeys with nuclear weapons. Don't tell the truth unless your following is big enough and feed your kid. kids are all big. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Please. Yes. Yes. That's awesome. Rob, I, uh, I sort of consider you the, um, the, like, the fit uncle of uh, a paleo diet. Um, I wanted to say grandfather, but that wasn't, that didn't give you enough respect. So I'm 49 I'm, now I'm there. I mean, I, and also my, fo- my family is from the South, mainly rednecks. So like 49 and being a great grandfather could yeah, be in, in the, the mix there. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Um, so it, in any case, I'm sure you've, you've recommended paleo like diets, low carb diets, keto diets to lots, lots and lots of people over the years, right? Like, you know, your followers, as well as people at the gym and friends and family. Have you seen much in the way of variation in terms to how people respond to that diet or, or is it just consistent across the board? No, no, it's huge. And this was my huge failing early on. Um, I had very good success for myself at a, at a lower carb intake. And then I had some survivor bias of, of clients in the gym and also that I worked with online that did really well. And although I can be kind of a prick at times, I'm usually a pretty nice person and I really legitimately like to help people. And so it was kind of crazy. Um, I hadn't seen a gal in the gym for maybe like six months and, and I, we, we were out and about, and then I saw her 
And I was like, Hey, you look great. What have you been doing? And she was kind of like, well, I was kind of looking around and, and uh, I, I saw somebody recommending maybe, you know, kind of paleo-esque, but more carbs and a little lower fat. And I did that and I felt way better. I'm like, that's awesome. I was like, why didn't you tell me about that? And she's like, well, I thought you'd be upset and you're like a nice guy. And so, you know, it, it, it's funny. Like, I, I think I failed and I probably broke a lot of people not, not respecting that there is this huge variability um, within folks. And, you know, even within that, like I, I just continue to kind of get this, um, you know, peeling the onion type of deal, like for someone like me that mainly sits on their backside. Most of the time I do jujitsu three days a week. I lift some weights a couple of days a week, but my activity level is low. Um, I don't need that many carbs, but somebody who's a CrossFit games competitor, somebody who is a, a, a going to, to Pan Ams and jujitsu or something like that. And they're doing six training sessions a week and double days at, at certain times they need a lot more carbs, but what's really interesting, even in that, you know, a desk jockey might be in ketosis at 30 to 50 grams of carbohydrate a day, but a CrossFit games competitor who might still run well on lower carb than what you might think might still be in, in like raging ketosis at 150 or 200 grams of carbs a day. And that was something that I just didn't appreciate until I, I started doing a little bit more testing, a little bit more metrics. And that's not to say that being in ketosis was like the end all be all for all people under all circumstances. But we did notice that um, recovery was really good for these folks. Like if we, if we didn't try to max out the carb intake, which could lead into like some blood sugar dysregulation and some pro-inflammatory stuff, if we could find a middle ground, you know, it was way higher than sedentary paleo keto would, would usually do well with, but it was quite a bit lower at a carbohydrate level than say what the American Council of Sports Medicine was oftentimes recommending. We found people did really well, particularly if they were in like an aerobic base building phase of their, their training or something like that. Like that was really magical stuff. And then when they started really ramping up the intervals, you know, getting into double days and whatnot, we might need to ratchet the carbohydrates up even further. So yeah, we, we, um, I think that that paleo template is cool. Like if we were using a dart analogy, it gets most people about 80% there. And then we really need to, to customize from there. And, and I, I guess my simplest way of looking at that now, I really like to focus on protein, make sure that people are getting about a gram of protein per pound of either body weight or lean body mass. Like there's kind of a, a spectrum within that. And then do a little bit of tinkering and figure out if you do better on mainly fat, mainly carbs or a combo. And then under what circumstances do those things change? Like you could have somebody that's pretty carb tolerant, they do well, but they're a firefighter. And when they do their shift work, they notice that when they cough, come off shift, when they've been awake all night, they are not carb tolerant then. So some days of the week, they maybe should be low carb. And this is where we are able to go from like a very big picture, simple story, and then get down and get very granular to address the needs that, that individuals have. But yeah, I, um, I did the total Dunning-Kruger thing on that in the, the early parts of my career. I thought that because this thing worked well for me and worked well for some people that it worked well for everybody. And I, I, I broke some folks doing that. Well, before Mike asks you too many nerdy questions about macros and things, I want to <laughs> get into farming. So um, 
there's quite a few questions that I get really tired of, of answering. So I'm going to torture you with them. Awesome. Responses. I already admitted to you that uh, Julie and I are on a farm right now with uh, quite a few different ruminants on it. Mm-hmm. But aren't grazing animals destroying the planet, Rob? That is the word on the street. And uh, they, they, I've seen uh, numbers kicked around from, from both media and occasionally like outfits like the World Health Organization will get wrapped up in, in this stuff that um, 70% of global greenhouse gas emissions come from ruminants, you know, grazing animals and specifically, you know, uh, cattle used in, in animal husbandry. This is, and the... It's so funny because we're in um, the post-information truth age. Like we're at a spot now where you really can't believe much of anything. And and this is, again, like circling back, Julie, to your, your first question. Like it's a really dangerous spot because you don't really know anything that, that's true or not true. And there's so much information. Like who can fact check everything? Like it, it, it's kind of crazy. But um, when Diana and I really dug into this information – the, the real numbers on whether uh, on the total amount of greenhouse gas emissions from animal husbandry specifically as a percentage of, of food production, to say nothing of, of global production, of food production, it's somewhere between 3 and 14%. And it, it depends on the way that you calculate it and the different things that you're looking at and whatnot. But what really gets missed in that story is that whether it's methane or carbon dioxide that is coming out of animals, this is part of a cycle. Um, the sunlight falls on the earth. It great grass grows. It pulls carbon dioxide out of the soil. Some of that carbon dioxide goes below ground and helps to grow topsoil as, as the, the sugars that go below ground feed bacteria and fungi that, that mine minerals. And that actually becomes new topsoil. Some of that carbon dioxide gets bound into cellulose and that gets eaten by grazing animals and the grazing animals working in synergy with, with, um, beneficial bacteria convert that cellulose into short chain fatty acids, which is what fuels them. And then part of that process produces both methane and carbon dioxide. And methane is a, a more potent greenhouse gas, but it only lasts about 10 years in the atmosphere and then gets converted back into carbon dioxide and water. And again, it's part of a living system. Um, and, and so the, the carbon that is emitted as we breathe out right now is going to get incorporated into green living material at some point, And then hopefully that gets eaten by some animal and, and it's this cycle. And it, what's really dangerous about this whole story is that a couple of things. One is that it focuses attention away from the transportation sector, which is really the, the very potent contributor to the, the greenhouse gas emission topic. And even that, like I'll, I'll, totally annoy people even more. Like if you're really concerned about greenhouse gas emissions and you're not super well educated on nuclear energy, thorium reactors, the difference between a generation one versus a generation five uh, nuclear reactor, and you can't have a conversation about the physics and the, the differences between those things, maybe you shouldn't have a strong opinion about nuclear energy, but maybe you should spend some time learning about it. And that's just kind of like a, a soapbox aside, but, um, when you look at the total contribution of the transportation sector relative to animal husbandry, it's just huge. And it's not part of a, a really short-term cycle. It could, I guess, be viewed as a longer-term cycle, but 
uh, fossil fuels are taking carbon that has been sequestered underground for sometimes hundreds of millions of years, and we're releasing it into the atmosphere at a, at a pretty high clip. And now it, there's even interesting elements to that. Like uh, uh, NASA had a piece that was talking about how as carbon dioxide has increased globally, the planet has begun to green. There is more green plant matter growing because carbon dioxide is a limiting uh, uh, ingredient in the ability for plants to grow. The higher the carbon dioxide concentration, the easier it is for plants to grow. So it's not entirely clear if there's not going to be an interesting feedback mechanism that plants and, and algae and plankton may end up growing at a rate that is fast enough to pull more of that carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and mitigate some potential elements of climate change. And this is where I'm kind of in this uh, somewhat am ambivalent spot. Like I, I feel like we need to have a lot more discussions and, and Doc, to your point, we really need to talk a lot more about trade-offs. Like, do we want to cut all animal husbandry out of food production and shift exclusively to a row crop centric model to reduce total carbon emissions by about 2.8%, which is what happened if you, if you removed all animal husbandry out of the U.S. food system, our total greenhouse gas footprint would change, would reduce by about 2.8%. Is that worth it relative to all the other things that we, we would lose and particularly when you when you consider what we aren't focusing on, which is basically that transportation sector. Yeah, and I mean, when I think about animals versus the monoculture crops that you mentioned, the row crops, I, I think about what is probably one of our most valuable national resources, which is our soil. And those monocultures destroy the soil and animals build the soil. Um, so it's in my mind, my simplistic mind, that is such a great argument for animal husbandry. But how would you, how do you think about the ethics of eating animals. We have some adorable goats just outside. Yeah. Uh, how do you think about the ethics of that? The, the ethics are, are interesting. And when we got in and started looking at this, we thought that we were going to lead with the ethic, ethics part of the book first. Uh, the sacred cow is the environmental, ethical, and, and uh, health considerations of a meat-inclusive food system. And what was interesting, though, is as we wrote the book generally, what we found was that it's very hard bordering on impossible to feed humans adequately without animal product input. And there was just a, a paper published a, a few days ago that looked at vegan children raised in vegan families in Finland. These people are very wealthy. They're very well educated. They worked with the researchers like crazy. Like there's a joke that, that goes around like, um, who would tell you what they do first, a CrossFitter or a vegan? And, you, you know, it's like nobody, nobody knows quite exactly which one that is. But um, I mean, these people are really excited about their lifestyle. They really believe in it. So they work tightly with these researchers. And these kids are a mess. Like they are a metabolic mess. They're nutrient deficient. Um, they are really deficient in the long chain uh, uh, omega-3 fats that build the brain. They're deficient in zinc and iron. They're having failure to thrive. They have increased rates of infections. Like they're really not doing well. And this is in a really wealthy, educated group of people. How does that play out when you suggest that marginalized, low-income minority populations should remove animal products. They have less money for supplements. They have less access to healthcare. Like, you know, it, 
it's it, it, in this last year where social justice topics became so important and, and rightfully so in so many ways, but it's been completely missed that the people who will suffer the most from removal of animal products out of the food system are poor and already marginalized people. So is it ethical to suggest that you remove food, uh, animal products from a food system in which say like a uh, New York city uh, school systems, 70% of the kids are considered low income and 10% of them are considered homeless. And oftentimes these singular meals that these kids get at all is through the school system. So is it ethical for these school systems to remove animal products when we know that that is going to increase the the rates of nutrient deficiencies and other illnesses. So ethics becomes really interesting there. And then when you look at the fact that raising row crops and the industrial system, you know, you've got to plow the soil. They will oftentimes spray the soil with like, like bromine type um, uh, uh, fungigants and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, different different sprays just the the processing of grains kills enormous numbers of of animals ranging from like snakes to birds to rodents then when those grains are stored those grains have to be fumigated to kill the 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 rodents that would otherwise eat the bulk of this stuff so you're you're killing massive numbers of animals and there's actually been some interesting studies done comparing a model that is grass large grazing animals, fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds as kind of one model, and then the industrial row crop model, and you actually kill fewer animals in the grazing animal-centric system than you do in the industrial row crop system. So from the least harm principle, which is, is this idea of, you know, how do we produce the least amount of harm and in, in, in the least death out of these two systems, the grass and grazing animal-centric model appears to be much more ethical. And then I, I think that all of this stuff kind of comes around to, um, we have a, a growing population that is so uncomfortable with the notion of death, their own death, death in the environment. Um, they're completely divorced from the fact that, that we're all going to live and we're all going to die and that we're part of a cycle. And so I think that that, in addition to these other things, like there's good intention behind not wanting to see animals abused. And, uh, uh, you know, there've been like some animal liberation videos showing animals mistreated under different circumstances. Ironically, a fair number of those videos, it was later discovered, it was actually vegan folks who had infiltrated those work sites and then created these videos. Not all of them, but, but you know, they created these, these really uh, uh, shock value videos around animals being mistreated. Like people who raise animals don't want to mistreat them. There's no upside for them on that. Like you, you either um, ruin the meat, create a, a more expensive uh, medical bills. And at the end of the day, not everybody is like this horrible monster, even if they do do eat animals. Like a, 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 to your point, like your goats and sheep and everything, like they're, they're cute. Like when we had goats and sheep, it was, it was, it was a tough day when we, when we harvested our animals, like it, it was kind of a, it was a tough day and, and it, it was, um, it reminded me of my own mortality. It made me very thankful for these animals for, you know, basically like, okay, this is the end of the road for you. And, and, uh, you know, there was some pretty deep gratitude there, but it, uh, uh, I, I worked my ass off to take care of those, those animals and make sure that they were as, as safe and secure and as happy as possible, given the time that they were going to have. Uh, so I, you know, the, 
the ethics pushback on this this topic it's the vegan kind of model is very sexy it's very um soundbite worthy it's great for social media memes and to unpack any of that you kind of need a mini phd in like like uh integrative ecology and thermodynamics and a bunch of other things to really to say well is that really an ethical you, you know uh, consideration and although i think people are interested in longer form you know discussions around topics or whatnot they really the the folks pushing this this uh kind of anti-meat agenda, they've really got some advantages there because they have a really slick storyline. You know, if you, if you eat less meat, you'll live longer. You're more, you're morally superior. You'll look great naked. Um, you know, you're saving the planet. Like that's all really compelling stuff. And I think that the, uh, you know, like the regenerative ag scene, we, we actually have that, that same story to win, but it's a lot more complex to tell it. Yeah. So as much as I would like to talk about stocking density and multi-species rotational grazing, I'm not going to. So my, my last question is if someone is interested in that super nerdy stuff and they want to learn more about regenerative agriculture, other than reading uh, Sacred Cow to start, what are the resources would you encourage people to dive into? If, this, if they've not heard about some of the things you're talking about, where could people start to learn more, learn more about that? Man, uh, Savory Institute is a really good resource. And Alan Savory has a great TED talk where he talks about this stuff. And um, he, he makes the case, and granted, the science is not settled on this. Like, I, I believe that what he's pr- putting forward is accurate, but the science is not settled. But he makes the case that properly managed grazing animals can sequester more carbon out of the atmosphere than what they produce. And that this effect can kind of go on pretty much forever. And so one of our greatest tools in managing climate change and preventing soil erosion and uh, uh, rebuilding topsoil and improving water capture of of our our landscapes is properly managed and raised grazing animals. So it's a really important topic to, to get right or to at least have a discussion around because if, you know, currently it's really interesting COVID and climate change somewhere along the line got like wedded together. When you look at like World Economic Forum, Great Reset information and whatnot, like somehow this virus got tied into climate change. And now we need to like gut our transportation sector in a specific way. And we need to curtail animal husbandry because of its ties into climate change. And um, maybe these people are right, but possibly they're 100 percent wrong and they're actually demonizing one of the most powerful tools that we have to, uh, to fight climate change. And I'll just throw this out as an aside. There was a Forbes piece that was written about like impossible burger and all these kind of lab grown meat type things. And it it was really interesting. It was pretty scathing, but it, it made the case that veganism as sold that way was solely a friend of the industrial row crop food system, basically of, of big ag and big pharma, because those are the folks that, that raise this food. There's six companies that are responsible for raising about 95% of the food that's consumed on the planet. And I, I, I'm, a, I'm a big free market capitalist type person, but I, w- I do have reservations about monopolies, particularly global monopolies. Like there's some really dangerous things that can happen out of that. 
Well, um, thank you. I know we're going to wrap up. Thank you for letting the three of us gang up on you here in this podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> like normally it's the other way around. Um, and for digging into so many controversial topics and for really taking that on in the work that you do and in your book. Um, huge honor to be here. And if this one is controversial enough that this one accidentally gets deleted, I will not blame you guys because um, <laughs> can- cancel culture is a thing these days. So yeah, yeah. Um, and other than, of course, reading the book, Sacred Cow, where else can people find your work and what you're doing? You know, sacredcow.info. I spend a lot of time over there. Um, I do a lot of work for Element, uh, drinkelement.com. Um, I'm largely off of social media. I, I throw some stuff on there, but I don't curate anything. And I guess really the main place that folks can find me is over at The Healthy Rebellion, join.thehealthyrebellion. Uh, that's an online community that that we've had for a little over a year. And my wife and I have a podcast by the same title, The Healthy Rebellion. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And as a reminder, if you want to learn more about Dr. Mike Mallon and Dr. Matt Dawson, you can check them out in episode 172 of the Pursuing Health podcast. I'll catch you next time. See you later. 